in our culture around Christmas this real angst. You can see it in all sorts of uh, things that are written. You can see it in movies. You can see it in songs and other things. But this idea that, okay, this time's here, and we're supposed to be happy, but I'm kind of afraid I'm not happy. And almost I thought I was happy, but now that I got to thinking about it and being worried about whether or not I'm happy enough, I'm, I'm not happy anymore. There's all this worry. Is, is it going to live up to what it's supposed to be? And, and, uh, but, or is it fake? I, I, maybe even I thought I was happy, but now is, is, is it put on? Or is that really what we're supposed to do? Is, is that the point? That uh, Christmas is a time when you go to the closet and you pull out the happy face that hasn't been used in a while and you stick it back on, you wear it for the day, and then you take it back off. And for the watching world sometimes, I think that's what they think. And so again, in all sorts of settings, movies, things written, you have these caricatures of the hollowness, the superficiality of a discussion of Christmas. Because we know there is not peace. There is war. And there is rumor of war. Some of you, people in your church, people in my church, have right now friends and family members who are literally away on fields of combat. Doesn't sound very peaceful. Even closer to home, in many of the homes that we minister to, there's not a lot of peace. In fact, one of the things, the conversation I have frequently around that time with college students is them saying, I don't know what it's going to be like when I go home. Maybe because it's a difficult situation there for various reasons. Sometimes because they're the only believer in the home and it's been such a breath of fresh air to be around other believers. And now, at this time of year specifically, what's it going to be like to go back there knowing that nobody else shares this same appreciation or joy and, in fact, you may be mocked for it. Peace may actually be the thing that is particularly absent from our world. And yet, we come around, at least, hopefully more than this, but at least at this time, we come around this message and may be confronted with, okay, how do we speak to this? What I want to tie this to is we looked in the earlier sessions about paying close attention to the text. But here then I also want to say, if we're going to have um, preaching which is fresh and living, we also need to pay close attention to our people. We need to know our people. The strongest preaching grows out of pastors. So that the person speaking to the congregation is not simply a talking head, but is the shepherd who has been laboring in their midst through the week. In, in various settings, the person who has prayed for you, the person who has helped you, the person who is speaking on Sunday is the same person who has spoken in this area and that area of our lives. And even, I would argue, this is a part of our sermon preparation. Because we live in the real world. Uh, you, maybe there's a certain amount of time you'd like to spend on, on the study of your text. And this week you got a call. Uh, somebody was in the hospital and they were in, in a really bad situation. And you went there. Or there was a death and you had to deal with that. Or there was a marriage that was in trouble. And uh, the call came. I'm using real examples from my life and I know they echo with yours. Uh, the call came about 10 o'clock. But it wasn't... Well, let's see if we can schedule this. This was you. We got to deal with this now. And you had plans. That was when you were going to get some of your studying done. 
This is the reality. But this getting our hands dirty in the lives of our people is also sermon preparation. It is one of those things that would cause you to come alive to the text. I think there are a number of ways I could argue for this, but here's just one. Isn't it true that as you read the Bible, right, today certain things grab you, and then tomorrow different things grab you? And a lot of that has to do with what's going on in your world. Now, sometimes the Lord just does something. But typically, there's a concern or there's a question that's on your mind, and therefore the texts that speak to that jump out at you. And those are really living because they speak to your need. But the problem is, we only have our need in view there. As we walk along with our people, and as we know of the joys and the pains, the victories and the sufferings of our people, and as they are on our heart, we have all that much more sensitivity to the Scripture. Because this point out of this text may not be the main thing that was on my mind about myself, but it is on my mind about this person. And so my mind and heart is more sensitive to more of the things that are here and they jump out at us. This is one of the reasons why pastoring and preaching go together. So as we're attentive to that, this will help us. And then, uh, this is an old line that I've heard a hundred times and I imagine you have as well. Preach to hurting people and you'll never lack an audience. Something about that. That ties right in with what Greg was talking about, uh, Psalm 23. Speaking to those kind of real world situations. There's much to that, but I want to use Christmas as an example to deal with this kind of issue. And to start us, I hope to mention Luke 2 along the way, but to start us, I want to look at one of the Old Testament prophecies. So if you'll turn to Isaiah chapter 8. I'll read Isaiah 8, 11 through to 9, 7. A bit of a longer passage. Now chapter 9 is the familiar stuff, especially when you get over to verse 6. For unto us a child is born. I want to take this text and hopefully illustrate a few things, just in preaching it, essentially. Notice some things about context, the value of paying close attention to the text and its context. We'll see some things about background studies. We'll see some things about putting ourselves in that situation and then hopefully applying it. So first of all, let me simply read our text here. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall regard as holy. Let him be your fear, let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? 
Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray once more. Father, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful that your word is realistic. It does not tell us to hide the realities of pain and suffering, but instead speaks directly to it and gives us hope. So we ask that you would speak to us in this session today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this text is fairly long, and since we have to be out in time for supper at five, we can only deal with a little bit of it. And I really, since we just ate lunch, I try to throw out a few things early on to see who really is awake so I can know who to look at while I'm speaking. But there's a lot here. But I read a lot to get some context. To go back to the Christmas discussion. What does it mean for there to be peace on earth? Is this all fake? And what is this? We know Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 as a Christmas passage. As a prophecy of the Messiah. But I want you to see the context in which it comes. Isaiah, in the first seven chapters, has been laying out the message of God's judgment. God is going to destroy the people. The people don't really believe it. That's part of why he's going to destroy them. He's been saying, it's coming. It's coming. The Assyrian is coming from the north. He will destroy the northern kingdom. And then someone else is coming, and he will destroy the southern kingdom. But they won't hear Even though this is anachronistic, we can almost imagine them saying, Isaiah, listen, it's Christmas. We don't want to hear about judgment and Assyria. That's not what we're interested in. Tell us about hope. Tell us about joy. But you can only understand that when you first take seriously God's judgment about sin. 
And so there, in the first part of what I read in, in uh, 8, 11 and following, he, he tells them this is what it's going to be. The sin's going here. Don't call conspiracy what these other people call conspiracy. This is part of how we deal with our sin sometimes. What did you do wrong? Well, you see, it's that person's fault. And that person was scheming against me. But he's saying none of that. And he talks about this coming judgment and says that this gloom will be upon them. Even the way that chapter 8 closes, very specifically, Behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. We live there sometimes. And in this text, the reason people are in this darkness is buried. Some of the people, because they're in rebellion against God, and therefore there's darkness. Some of the people we preach to are there. They do not know Christ. They're in rebellion against Him, and they're in darkness. But Isaiah will also be a part of this darkness. He is not in rebellion against God. But it is part of the world around him. He says here that the Lord has hidden his face from Israel. Greg referred to the dark night of the soul. We have those times where for one reason or another, the presence of God seems unreal. He seems far away. And we walk through the time of darkness. What are we to do in those times? Now he says, to the word and to the testimony. Shall we not consult our God? And I will wait on the Lord. And yet, it's dark. We find ourselves in those kind of times sometimes. Where the Lord seems absent, or maybe he's there, but things are just falling apart. And it seems that misery comes in company. Things kind of all happen together, and it's a dark day. We walk through those times and, again, you can check the stories. They're all around. This will come up around Christmas and say, is it really beginning to look a lot like Christmas? The song says it is, but is it really beginning to look a lot like Christmas? It struck me several years ago. Really, the first time I preached on this text, uh, I was a seminary student pastoring. And I saw the context here and thought, yes. Is it really beginning to look a lot like Christmas? Well, it depends on what you think Christmas looks like. Are you saying that there is sin and suffering? that it's dark and difficult, that we desperately need rescue. Because if so, it really is beginning to look a lot like Christmas. This is the setting. That chapter closes with, they will be thrust into thick darkness. And sometimes our chapter break can confuse us there because we stop. Not supposed to read any more today. I finished the chapter. But you've got to just roll right on into the next part. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Now notice that. The ones receiving this promise were really in anguish. We know that. Anguish is a real part of life. And the message of Christmas is not that there will be no more pain right now. The message of Christmas is not that everything is right right now. It is not that peace on earth has entirely come yet. It is that there is hope. More on that in a moment. There is gloom. But there will be no gloom. There is coming a time, but even notice where he says, this is where some background will help us. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. 
What is that? Well, obviously those are a couple of tribes, but what does that mean? These are the uh, tribes on the northern border. And most of the great uh, invasions that happened in Israel came in through the north. The Assyrians came in and they beat up everybody down. They got to the southern kingdom and the Lord rescued them and they went back. The Babylonians are going to come this way. This is the place that takes the brunt of everything. So what he's saying is, in the place where wrath has been poured out most thoroughly, in that very place, grace will come most completely. Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, when we read Galilee, we think strong man of Galilee. That's Jesus' place. But again, these people don't know that yet. It's Galilee of the Gentiles. And you know that around Jerusalem, if they said that, they would say it something like Galilee of the Gentiles. Those kind of people. I mean, it's in Israel, but it's so affected by those kind of people that we call it Galilee of those kind of people. And that wrong side of the tracks place, there he has made glorious the way. It is there. And this is the message of Christmas. That in the midst of the suffering, in those painful dark places, hope will And that is true because of where this goes, that a son has been given to us. A child has been born. The message of Christmas is that God has not remained aloof. He has not stayed away, but he has invaded time, space, history. And because he has done that, there is hope. Things are different. They haven't all been fixed now. And so the watching world says, yes, but it still hurts. There's still difficulty. There's still pain. We say, absolutely. The message is that God has acted decisively and therefore there is hope for the future. It is important that this significant messianic promise comes right in the midst of darkness. The message we preach is not some escapist idea, but it is very real and powerful. It speaks to us at our points of deepest hurt and pain. Now, you can see an example of this also in Luke chapter 2. If we take up one of the standard um, New Testament Christmas texts. There, uh, we've already had the announcement to Mary. So, she's going to have uh, the Messiah. She knows that. That's a fun text just to talk about on their own. But we don't have time for that. Uh, Particularly on the line of, we, I think, tend to read that again on the assumption that she's expecting this word to come instead of dealing with the fact that probably this teenage girl is doing her regular chores, whatever they were, and all of a sudden an angel shows up. Now in all the texts when an angel shows up as a messenger this way, he looks like a a regular man. But a man shows up talking to this young maiden. And this is a small town. Some of you live in small towns. Everybody knows everybody. But this guy we've never seen before. And he just shows up out of nowhere and he says, um, Behold, one you know, highly favored of the Lord. That almost sounds like a really bad come on line. I have to think it would halfway creep her out. And she is afraid. The text says so. And he has to soothe her. And then he gives her this incredible message. It was just unbelievable. And so she ends up to be a picture of discipleship because she hears... And obeys. 
even there, that strong line where he tells her that she's going to have a child. She then asks a very sensible question. She's not flighty. I mean, you can imagine. Uh, Jewish girls conceivably have been talking around together at their slumber parties. Who's going to be mom of the Messiah? Maybe it'll be you, maybe it'll be me. And now this angel shows up and says, it's you. And she, but she doesn't just go all bonkers, but she says, okay, I am engaged to be married, but um, do I need to move up the date a little bit? How is this going to happen? How will this be, she asks. And the angel says, oh, don't worry about it. The Holy Spirit will come over you and will cause you to uh, be pregnant with this child. Right. What's that going to mean? You're going to be pregnant out of wedlock. What's that going to mean? What was the penalty? Death. Exactly. So what he is saying is, here is God's call on your life. And she would be thinking, now I know what that's going to look like. And I know what the penalty is. Death. And someone might say, oh yes, but we know that even though they had these death penalties, the Jews could not carry out execution on their own. They had to get Roman permission. Oh, that's technically true. But lynch mobs are not new. Ask Stephen. So she knows what the potentials are. And you know how things go through your mind in a split second in these kind of situations. What's going through her mind? Okay. So I'm not yet married to Joseph, but I'm pregnant. How are we going to do that? We just don't tell anybody for a while. Well, eventually you can't hide that. Then what are you going to do? When Joseph says, why, honey, what's happened? Oh, just say to him, God did it. How far is that going to go? And what about her parents? And what are they going to do? Are they going to put her out? All these things. This is a risk to the marriage that she's anticipating, the life that's ahead, everything that would have been part of the regular vision and aspiration of a young woman at that time is all at risk. And yet her response is, Behold the handmaiden of the Lord. Do with me as you will. That is the response of the disciple of Christ. She's a picture there for us. So we've heard this message, but if we're following along maybe the first time, or we're following the story, then we think, all right, yes, the Messiah is going to be born, but then... Our, our Bible uh, connection, our mind goes off, and we think, oh, no. They live in Galilee. Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. That's the other side of the country. That's a long way in those terms. How are we going to get them all the way down there? How are you going to convince a couple uh, with a young woman who's great with child in the KJV, uh, a long way along pregnant, to take such a journey? There's no short flights. There's no bus. There's no train. How are you going to convince them to go? We might even, if we were reading for the first time, get sort of panicked and worried about what we're going to do, trying to encourage them to have a Bible study in the book of uh, Micah for maybe, you know, to see if they'll read at Micah 5 and catch on what's going on. But there's never any panic in heaven, although there often is here. But what is it that causes them to get to the right place? You know the story. It's the whole statement from the emperor about the census, which is about taxes. But nobody at that time, when the word came from the emperor to sign up for more taxes, was saying, yes, Messiah is being born. Now, you think about it. There's news going on right around us with potentially more taxes. I don't think any of us are having parties about it. 
we have Israel under the oppression of Rome, chafing under it. Rebellions already fomented in different places. People crying out, where is God? I thought Messiah was supposed to come. I thought Messiah was supposed to rescue us. We have the pagans trampling our land and they bring their images in and they bring the eagles with their legions and other carved images which are offensive to us and offensive to God. Where is God? Why will he not rescue us? And then in that midst, word comes. The pagan emperor has said we don't pay enough taxes. Now already we're living day to day. So when Jesus said, give us our daily bread, he was talking a regular language. You go out this day to work to bring in enough for people to eat that night and you go back the next day to do the same. And it's those people who are told your taxes are going up. And who's the person who's raising them? The pagan emperor over there. Wicked. No doubt people are then saying, why will God allow this? Where is God? Does God not care? I thought he loved his people. I thought he would rescue his people. Why did he allow the emperor to increase our taxes? And what they do not know, and indeed cannot know, that this message to increase their taxes and to cause for some of them a difficult travel is actually God at work bringing the Messiah into the world. Many, many times in our lives, those messages and those events which look to us like proof of the absence of God's care are actually God's great provision. Now we might say, but how could they know that? They couldn't. How will we know it? Oftentimes we will not. And this is why we walk by faith and not by sight. God has told us. I referred to 1 Peter 5 earlier. He cares for us. There will be times when we go, "Mm, can you prove that to me? Of course we always can. Because greater love has no man than this than he laid down his life for his friends. If we keep the cross ever before us, we know the love of God, but we struggle to really feel that. But the message of Christmas is that God is at work in the wicked events of the world to bring about our salvation. The pagan king is over here, the emperor. Why did he decide to raise taxes? I don't know. I don't know if there's any records telling us why. I'm sure he had an idea of what he thought was going on. But Proverbs tells us that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord and he turns it wherever he wills. The main reason why the emperor decided to raise taxes is because God put it on his heart. God put it on his heart to increase the tax burden on his people? I hate to say it, but yes, because he was about bringing the Messiah into the world. And the Lord shows his way of being willing to sacrifice our comfort for our sanctification. Again and again and again. God is at work in the horrible, hard, difficult things working out our salvation. Sometimes we then see what he was doing and sometimes we don't. But we must trust him. Just as it is here in this great darkness. Whether it's darkness because of our sin Darkness that is um, punishment or darkness that is just part of the road that God has given us to walk. We must believe that God is at work. God is at work to rescue us. God is at work to deliver us. When we preach these texts, we must preach this point. 
I argued earlier that the gospel is the center of it all, and the gospel is good news. Martin Luther, I have this quote on another piece of paper, which is stuck at home somewhere, but he has this great quote when he, he mentions that it is one of the supreme arts of the devil to turn the gospel into law. And it is a temptation that strikes us preachers often. Where, thinking that we want to drive the people to holiness, it makes best sense to us then, if we'll take up the club of the law and beat them real good, then maybe they'll try to be holy like we are. And yet Galatians, for one place, makes it very clear. Having begun in the Spirit, will you continue in the law? It is the good news which empowers us. Now, the good news carries the message of God's word against sin, but it always brings back the promise of forgiveness and salvation that is in Christ. And therefore, for those who are in Christ, therefore there is now no condemnation. We must preach that truth. We must lay it out there before them. Luther goes on to say, when the devil comes and basically brings up to me my sin and says, what about this and what about that? As if ever I engage him on his, the conversation on his terms, I am lost. But if I begin the conversation, Christ has paid my debt. Then I can turn him away every time. We need this here as well. As we see these things of pointing out what's going on, the difficulties in our life, and pointing to the gospel, God is at work redeeming his people. That also is the theme of every text you take up in the scriptures. God is at work redeeming his people. That's what he does after Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. That's what he's doing when he calls Abraham. He is at work calling a man to himself from which will come his people. This is what he's doing when Abraham uh, lies and lets his wife be taken up by another man and yet he appears in the vision to Abimelech and says, you're a dead man. That man's mine. We find ourselves going, but he didn't deserve that kind of protection. Exactly. God had promised to bring his people, his deliverer through that line, and God, for his name's sake, was going to establish that and continue that. This is the theme all the way through, again and again. This is the theme here in this passage of judgment and then the coming of the Messiah. The Messiah comes in answer to our judgment. We need to preach these truths. We need to preach to our people in their pain. We need to preach to hurting people. This came to my mind, I actually uh, preached on this text again this, this last uh, Christmas. Some of you may know, probably most of you don't, we don't know each other uh, personally, that my brother, my older brother, died this, uh, this last year in September in uh, a tragic shooting accident. Uh, so we got a call at, I don't know, 11 at night or something. Uh, he was a year and a half roughly older than me. It's a total surprise. A death, this may seem odd to say because what death isn't, but nonetheless, tragic, in a way, senseless. You know, it didn't seem to be any meaning to it. Just, boom, there it is, gone. So what do you do with that? What does that mean then when you come to Christmas again? When I was preaching this text at Christmas, it actually ended up to be his birthday. He was born in December. So December 13th. I was preaching. This is my text. I thought, this speaks to me. The day before had been Union's uh, December graduation. 
And so it, that's held at a church there, and so we're sitting in the choir loft and doing a thing. I'm thinking about the fact that tomorrow's my brother's birthday and, and how that plays in and thinking about his family and, and what all goes in there. And so my mind's wandering a little bit in the midst of things. We're singing. Um, and I also had this, this text written down. Let's see if I can pull it back up. Because we were singing a Christmas carol. Um, one of our standard ones, where it said, Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. And it hit me right there in the choir loft. Resurrection is not just the truth of Easter. It's the truth of Christmas, too. Jesus came, Hebrews 2, we talked about earlier, to destroy the works of the devil. He was born to raise the sons of earth. I needed that truth at that time. Now, prior to that, prior to that December, um, we'd had a conference, and uh, I was involved in uh, some of the planning of that. And so we're at the conference, you know how it is then, you run around doing your thing, and uh, a number of people were there, it was about a month after my brother's death, a number of people who knew me somewhat, I had not seen me since then, so they wanted to express their condolences, it was very kind, it was difficult though, because you're running around, people want to you know, say a nice word, and this older pastor, whom I've known, just really in passing over some time, caught me, and, uh, and wanted to express his condolences, and uh, he, was, he was very kind-hearted. Not very successful, but very kind-hearted. And uh, he said he was you know, sorry to have heard the news. And I think, he asked me how I was doing, and I don't remember what I said to him. Um, I think he particularly wanted to make sure that I wasn't over-spiritualizing, that I, I really dealt with pain and things, and I appreciated that. But what he said in his particular voice, I can't do impersonations like uh, Greg, but uh, I'll try to get this one. He just, I, I said, I think I'm doing okay, thank you. And he said... Pain, terrible, horrible, pain, pain that will last forever. I sat there and thought, well, you come on in there, Barnabas, (laughs) son of encouragement. My spirits are lifted. Thank you. Actually, lots of stuff was coming to my mind. And I was holding it. And he went on to continue and say about some book written in the 60s about um, difficulty and pain. And he said, in the end, what they concluded... He, he was trying to be nice. What they concluded was that in this life there is just suffering and we just have to try to do our best to get through it. So I decided to speak. And he said, there's suffering in this life, and we just do the best we can. I said, and then we die. Because I thought, if we're going to push it this way, I'm going to take it over the edge. (laughs) And it kind of took him aback a little bit. And then I said, that's why there's a resurrection. Because as he began to say this, it really rose up unbidden in my spirit which I take to be the mercy of God upon me. When he was saying anything about pain, pain that will last forever particularly, it welled up within me. You know those times. This truth 
that said, No, sir. That is not right. Pain, yes. Deep pain, yes. The category of widow and fatherless are more real to me than they were before. Pain, yes. But pain eternally, no, sir. Because there is a resurrection. And my Lord Jesus came out of the grave and has said, Therefore, all those whose faith are in Him, they will rise. He has drawn a line in the sand. And He has said to my pain and to your pain, This far and no further. You are not allowed into eternity. There is, as they say, a great getting up Sunday. There is a resurrection. And it matters. Doctrine matters. And the point of Christmas is, at least one of them, that the invasion force landed. The kingdom of darkness had usurped the throne. When Satan tricked Adam and took the place as the God of this world, or the power of the air, prince of the power of the air, Ephesians or Second Corinthians, he sits there as the usurper right now, but the invasion force has landed, and the decisive victory has been won. The wicked snake has been crushed. It still thrashes about and makes its presence known. But there is coming a day. Just as surely as Christ came the first time, he will return. And on that time, the rest of the snake will be finished. And all his people will be rescued. And we will know the kind of existence we were initially created to know. Christmas is the message that there is hope. It is not now as it ought to be, but it will one day be as it ought to be. When we preach Christmas, it ought not be simply a little story here or there. It ought to be the reminder that God, because of His great love with which He loved us, has condescended to redeem us and has invaded this world to do it. And He has said, it is so. There's much more in this passage that I'm not going to get to, but I want you just to see the end of verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, he has said these powerful things about the descriptions of Jesus. And he has said that of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. That's that eternity, eventually. But then he has said, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. As we wait for that day and we trust in that day, we need to know that the accomplishment of this is not some half-hearted thing that the Lord thought one time, yeah, why not? Let's give that a try. God is passionate about doing this. The Lord has staked his name on doing this. We may be tempted in one of those dark times to say, yes, but why should God be all that concerned even about this for me or for us? That's a good question. And if you push it hard enough, I don't have the answer as to why he should. But I have the answer that it is the zeal of the Lord of hosts that will accomplish it. It matters not if we can understand. In fact, we ought to be amazed at his grace toward us. But the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this thing. So as we encounter those dark times, we face them like Luther suggested saying the zeal of the Lord of hosts will deliver me and the rest of his people. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word. 
Thank you that you love us, that you care for us, even that you bring to mind truths at the right time to bless us and to care for us. Thank you for all of these here. Lord, for those who preach your word to your people, strengthen and encourage them for this important task. May our hearts be stirred by the truth of who you are. Not then to try to be anyone else in our preaching, but simply to take up your word on your behalf to your people for your glory, believing that you will build your kingdom. And then, Lord, may we have the privilege of seeing your work prosper in our hands, your kingdom advance and the kingdom of darkness driven back for the good of people and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.